Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. I am really excited to share this episode with you today. I have on Kathy Sikorsky, who's an elder care attorney, and she just has a wealth of information. We dive in detail about a lot of topics today, such as what legal documents to have, how you can get started with your estate planning, the costs you might incur, the difference between a trust and a will, and why you might want one over the other, the importance of actually funding a trust. Kathy also shares her journey of caregiving. She also provides insight into what sort of questions to ask in a hospital setting, how to appeal insurance denials, if you're looking for assisted living facilities or nursing homes, where you should go for information and how to think about how to put your loved one into one of those facilities, how to unwind as a caregiver, how you can accept help. And she also has quite a few books out there, some that are pretty funny and some with more actionable tips. So there is a lot for you today. I hope you really enjoy today's episode with Kathy Sikorsky. Good morning, Kathy. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Elliot. Oh my gosh, your your voice is so comforting. Has anybody ever told you that? I have heard that a few times, but it never gets old. Okay, so I'm happy to be here because you're very comforting. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you being here because you have a wealth of expertise that I am really excited to explore and dive a little bit further into just everybody listening you know, how people can age better, what sort of tips and best practices you have, what caregivers can do. Um, There's a lot to talk about today. So much. Yeah. But before we get into it, why don't you give just a brief background on who you are? I think the thing that people are surprised the most about me is, is that I have been a caregiver for eight different family members and friends over the last 30 years, not as my job, But just as someone who is, I guess I always say the caregiving train stops at my house and everybody gets off, right? (laughs) Wow. Um, Interestingly enough, that's exactly what informed my career. Uh, I was a small town general practice attorney for many years. And as I started to do this caregiving thing for my family and eventually some friends, um, elder law was also becoming a thing. Uh, it's actually a new area of the law. And so I just kept honing my skills because I needed them for myself, uh, for my personal, practical life. And so I became an elder lawyer. And that is really the kind of law that I've been practicing for, you know, 25 years now uh, is elder law. Uh, so I'm practicing elder lawyer, but mostly now um, I write books and do podcasts and um, educate people, especially women, about the financial and legal pitfalls of aging and caregiving and how we can get prepared and, you know, just be better prepared for this tsunami that I think is coming for all of us in some fashion. Yeah. Tell me more about this tsunami. 
<laughs> this tsunami. <laughs> oh, it, because when it hits, it hits hard, right? You're unexpected. There's there's that, what's that called? Like a, a rip current or whatever that draws mm-hmm. you back. And you think, okay, it's a little crisis. It's not going to be so bad. Somebody had a stroke. Somebody fell down, whatever, right? It's okay. Or yeah. they're acting a little wonky, but, you know, maybe with good nutrition or whatever, dad or mom will get better. And then, boom, that wave comes and hits us and knocks us all down. And we're like, whoa. Now we're dealing with all kinds of things. That's the tsunami. And what I think we can do, if we think that's coming for us, or even if we don't, is put a lot of things in place beforehand so that when the tsunami hits, it's easier to deal with the problems that are now at our fingertips. Yeah, that makes sense. And what what sort of things would you put in place? You mentioned there are some things you can put in place. So for people listening... What would be, you know, number one, maybe, and then go down the list of what you'd include? So usually I, I, I'm i not at my own house right now. <laughs> and I wish I had my purse with me because I have a big red purse that I carry with me. And inside I say, here's the tools. Like everybody mm. has to have tools, right? And the first thing I pull out of my purse is a big red hammer because we need the hammer. We need the most important tool in our toolbox to take care of everything as quickly and as easily as possible without anybody giving us any grief, right? And Mm -hmm. that is always going to be really, it's, you know, hammer has two sides, right? It's got the hammer head and the little thing that pulls stuff out. I don't even know what that's called. All the times I use a hammer. Do you? No, I I am not a, I'm no tools person. (laughs) Great. I feel better. But anyway, we need a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney for ourselves, which most people don't even do, but for yeah. a loved one, of course, that we think we're going to be taking care of so that nobody puts stumbling blocks in our way when it's time to make important or fast decisions about financial or healthcare matters that are just right now need to be dealt with. So we need those and we need them now. Um, that's the first and most important thing. And a lot of people think lawyers are going to tell you to get a will and whatever. Sure, they're all great. They're nice things. Um, A living will, which I'll tell you about in a second. But those two things, those financial and healthcare powers of attorney are the documents that you need in an emergency. And when an emergency happens, if you have them in your hand, you are golden. Nobody can stop you from doing what you need to do. Right? Yep. So then all those other legal documents, the will, a living will, which is also sometimes called an advanced directive, um, is a, I'll tell you the 30 second definition. It's a pull the plug or not pull the plug document. That's really what it is. It's very limited in its scope. It just says, I want all these things if I'm in a permanent vegetative state, period. That's all it talks about, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a permanent vegetative state, what do I want done? That's a living will or an advanced directive. And they're great. A DNR, a do not resuscitate, right? Also very limited. You shouldn't really have to have that until somebody's been sick for a very long time, whatever. Um, and then a regular will. Sure, everybody should have a will. Of course, why not have a will? Those are the legal tools. Perfect. And so for anybody listening, you know, I've found personally and professionally that sometimes it's tough to know how to take that first step to actually put all these documents in place. What, what advice or words of wisdom would you give people? Like, where should they start? Did you hear that sigh? That <sighs> I saw it for sure. <laughs> so the reason I sigh is because I know uh, he's, here's the stumbling blocks. 
people think it's too expensive. That's the first thing. I can't afford a lawyer. I can't go to a lawyer. That's too expensive. Sometimes I have to say to them, imagine the expense if you don't, right? So, so that's the first thing. So, but for some people, I truly believe that they do not have a disposable amount of income for seeing an attorney to create a cache of documents, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to disbelieve you. I know that that is sometimes very, very true. Even if you're taking care of your mom and she doesn't have the money and you don't have the money between you. The tendency then, of course, is to download things from the internet, which gives me great pause, maybe even a mini heart attack, right? You and me both. (laughs) Because I know that those documents are not particularly for you, right? Mm -hmm. And you can make big, big mistakes by downloading documents and signing them and, you know, trying to put them into place, right? And especially where I live, I live in Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is very, very, very snarky about our powers of attorney. They have to have really specific language about doing certain things. Um, And so, so I panic a little bit. So if you can only choose one or two, I'm going to say, choose those powers of attorney and pay for them. Go to a lawyer and pay for them. Right. And be honest about the fact that this is your budget. I think you can call around and find someone who can work within your budget. I'm always going to tell you to do that, but I am also cognizant of the fact that you're going to download documents from the internet. And sometimes maybe, I mean, it'll say, what state do you live in? If you, if you get a good website, they're going to try and comply with, you know, for instance, Pennsylvania, um, maybe you'll be okay. Maybe it's better than nothing. Maybe I'm going to say, if you have to do that, do that. But I would really prefer that you see an attorney and look up, you know, and for cost, call five attorneys and ask them how much it costs. Do not allow yourself to be bowled over by someone who says, well, I can't tell you that or then move on, call somebody else. There's lots of lawyers out there. You guys just, just keep calling until you have a decent conversation with someone who can tell you the average cost of what it is that you need. Okay. And maybe to just remove a barrier for folks and I know this varies depending on geographic region, but what could someone maybe expect to pay in, say, like a major metropolitan area and maybe a more rural area? Well, a super, super major metropolitan area, it's probably going to be, you know, 1500 to 2500 for all these documents, right? And that's um, including the will, financial powers? Two powers of attorney, a will, and an advanced directive if it's not included in your healthcare power of attorney, because sometimes they merge those documents, okay? So yeah, yeah. That, that that is the big cost. For people who have trusts and whatever, you have if you're ha- if you're creating a trust, you have enough money, and I shouldn't have to be talking to you about going to a lawyer, right? Um, that's a whole different conversation. For people who are who are really wanting to do the basic basics, you should be able to do this for a few hundred dollars in in your area, especially if you don't live in a major metropolitan area. Okay, yes. perfect. Thanks, Kathy. I know I know cost is always top of mind whenever we go towards these documents because it's it's a concern and it can be expensive and you know if something changes you have to get it updated and that's another cost and, and we're all and cognizant I, of that. I don't scoff at a couple hundred dollars is you know, that can be expensive to you. I, I absolutely appreciate that. But know that finding a couple hundred dollars to be able to let you do what you need to do if somebody is already sick or getting sick. And Elliot, you know this personally, right? 
as yeah. do I from being a caregiver. We know that we have dealt with these issues and we had to have those in place or it would have been so much dramatically worse. We would be yeah. talking about guardianships and court costs and things like that. Yeah. Not only is that super expensive, but just a complete headache and time consuming. I mean, the worst thing or the last thing you want to be doing during those times is dealing with having, trying to set these up at that moment. Right. Um, often it's too late. Right. Um, so Kathy, you went down the path of a trust. Um, and I want to, <laughs> I, 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 maybe just broad level overview, because that's one of the most common questions I get is, should I get a will? Should I get a trust? And I know we're not giving legal advice here, but right. can you just talk about the pros and the cons of each just to give people an idea and maybe talk a little bit about state to state specifics or different assets in different states? Yes. So interestingly, trusts are very different from state to state, not the actual trust or trust language, but why you might need it. One of the biggest things you're going to hear all the time is, oh, it avoids probate, which is a true story. But in my state, probate is nothing. It's a couple hundred bucks. It hardly costs anything. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I say this, people tell me I'm wrong, but it says it, it, it ensures your privacy. Also true. But I really don't think anyone's going to the courthouse looking for my will. I don't think anybody cares about what's in my will. I'm nobody, right? Um, if I'm George Clooney, maybe. Okay, yeah, you want to sure. have a lot of trust because people want to know what's in your will, but not so much Kathy Sikorsky. So for me in Pennsylvania, I, a trust might not necessarily be something I want or care about, a will might do exactly what I need it to do. Trusts are, yes, often the tool of the wealthy. I, I want that to be understood. But I also want you to understand that trusts are often the tool of the not so wealthy. And, and wealthy, of course, is a relative term, right? People mm -hmm. think that people have a house and an IRA and a 401k and, and, and um, you know, life insurance with, with different kinds of things attached to it, think that they're not wealthy, they're not millionaires, but they have a lot of assets. And so a trust might be important for you, especially if you have a special needs child or you need a way to transfer your wealth because you know that your family has early onset Alzheimer's, let's say, and you're a little bit scared about that. You don't have it. You don't think you're going to get it, but you might want to think about a trust because it's a way to protect your money from a nursing home, right? So trusts have their place. My understanding is probate in California is terribly expensive, like dramatically expensive. So trusts are used there all the time. Okay. And so not for the wealthy, but for everybody, right? Look at a trust to protect your assets. So that's, that's the way trusts are used and they are a good tool, but you have to have a conversation with a lawyer. No, hands down. I'm never going to say download a trust from, from an internet ever, 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 ever. Trusts are too complicated to leave that in the hands of someone who doesn't do it for a living. Now, here's the biggest fault that lies with trusts, maybe. People get trusts. They get them from insurance people. They get them from financial advisors and they're beautiful leather bound things that they pay $2,500 for and they never put anything in the trust. They don't fund the trust. So how do you fund a trust? Well, let's say you put, you're going to put your house in the trust. You literally have to redeed your house from you know, Bill and Susie Smith to the trust of Bill and Susie Smith. And if you don't do that, there's nothing in your trust. If you don't put accounts that say the trust of, there's nothing in your trust. So you have a bunch of pieces of paper that you paid a bunch of money for that are useless pieces of paper because there's nothing in the trust. 
Yeah. I, I want to pause there and just highlight everything Kathy is saying because that I, I see that happen way too frequently where people go through this tremendous planning. They create this fabulous trust that's customized. It's got a lot of different provisions for what they want to have happen after they pass away for their kids, for their grandkids. But if you don't actually put the money or the assets into the trust, whether that's your home or your brokerage accounts or your bank accounts, you did all that planning kind of for nothing because you're going to be going through probate even if you have a poor over will or something else anyway. It's a failure of a lot of people, right? It's yeah, let's talk about that. Professionals who create that trust, whoever they are. It's the failure of of the, the person who you know is, owns the trust, Bill and Susie, um, be, if, if they said, yeah, I'll do it and don't do it. But it's really the failure of all those people to really make sure that the whole plan is worked all the way to the end. Yeah, definitely. So I want to shift gears here a little bit. We've gone down the technical side, which is great because I love the technical work, but I want to shift back, maybe back towards the aging part of it. You had mentioned that you, <laughs> the train gets off at your house apparently. So I'm, I'm stopping at your house in the future and sending everybody your way since you've already handled eight people. But you know, how, how did those eight people end up at your house? What, what have you learned along the way? How, I mean, just tell me a little bit about that journey. I mean, that's, that's unique. So it started with my grandmother. My dad died when I was four years old. My mom had five children and she was pregnant with her sixth. And my dad was a helicopter pilot in the military and he died in a helicopter crash in the army. So we lived in Germany at the time and we moved home to Pennsylvania and moved in with my grandmother and grandfather and great grandmother. My great grandmother died the next day. She was getting out. She got out while the getting was good. <laughs> <laughs> grandfather sadly also passed away not and shortly thereafter. And there were was my mom and my nana with six kids. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I in a little tiny half a double in Pennsylvania. So I grew up with my grandmother and my grandmother in her 90s moved in with me uh, when I had a two-year-old and it was a debt I was surely happy to repay, right? Um, And then it just, you know, I mean, I was an attorney at the time, but I had a toddler, so I was working part-time and I think I I I started remote work to be very frank. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm the mother of remote work. Um, and then, you know, a great aunt needed help because her family didn't live nearby. And another great aunt who was from Australia, my husband's mother was in her 90s. She came to, she, we had to move her and I moved her very close to me so that I could, you know, be her caretaker. And then my brother-in-law had multiple sclerosis and my sister had passed away. So I was his primary caregiver uh, for seven years. My girlfriend fell down a flight of stairs, had traumatic brain injury. Uh, husband left her because he couldn't handle being a caregiver, which is not a ho- easy job. Um, so I became her primary. So yeah, it just happens. It just ha- life happens, right? Life, happens. life does happen. And along the way, I became very adept at this job, right? I learned how to deal with hospitals and insurance companies and doctor's offices. And, and you know, I started to get really good at all this stuff, not just the legal piece, but the real practical piece. And so you know, ask Kathy, right? That's what you do. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go there. Let's ask Kathy. So you mentioned insurance and hospitals. Are there any other sort of key segments that you think are important for people to navigate? I, I want to dissect them and go through each one individually. So, so okay. A, a shameless plug for my book, which is called 12 Conversations. And 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 yes, there's a, a, 
a chapter on your financial advisor slash insurance person, your doctor, right? Doctors are really important to be able to converse with them about things that are important because they're not listening to you. I just want you to know that. Insurance companies. Yes, absolutely. Hospitals. Yes. I mean, these are all places and lawyers you have to navigate and your family, siblings, um, um, your mom and dad may have completely different views about how to do things. So if both of your parents are living, your mom and dad are maybe two different kinds of conversations about how we're going to handle this or what's going on, right? Your spouse, your adult children, uh, all of these people have a vested interest, whether they know it or not, on what's going on in the caregiving world. And I will say, people come out of the woodwork <laughs> having opinions about everything you're going to do if you're the person who's you know now in charge. That they do. I recall someone where they had six siblings and all of a sudden you had six, not even six opinions, you had more than six because you also had spouses as well. Which is the beauty of those powers of attorney as well as that advanced directive because I pull it out and say, no, I actually have six, I actually have eight siblings because my mom remarried. Um, but I pull that out, not that I have to because my siblings are awesome, but I would say this is what mom wanted. This is her decision. This is what she put right here. You know, like, no, pull the plug. No, nothing. That's that's what I want. My mom's 93 and still living and quite a pip um, and very much a decision maker. But um, yes, that's why that documentation also helps you in those cases. Yeah. Okay. So out of insurance, hospital, doctors, families, spouses, all those, where should we start? I want to hit on at least a few of them. Okay. So, so let's just start with family, right? Yeah. If you're having a family crisis and somebody has... Actually, if you don't mind, Kathy, maybe we back up before the family crisis. Let's okay. say maybe you haven't had a family crisis and you are you have some proactive planning or you want to do that, because that's often a question that I get is, how do, you, how do you broach these conversations before something happens? Okay, great. So let's say your parents are older and you're thinking, you know, I need to make sure that they have their documents in place. I need to make sure that I'm going to be able to help them if they want help, right? Yeah. So you can go right for it and sometimes it works, you know? Let I'm going to make an appointment with a lawyer. Let's go, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. that works great. Sometimes obviously it doesn't work great. I would say enlist the aid of either siblings if you have them and you're all on board or somebody in their life who's a professional that they trust. So their doctor, their financial advisor, right? Their lawyer, if they have one, um, to say, look, it's time for us to have a conversation. I'm not breaching any HIPAA rules or, or you know, uh, anything like that. I just want to know that they will have a conversation with you about the fact that we need to take care of some legal documents. If you can enlist the aid of somebody they trust and respect, if it's not you, that often will move them off center. Okay. Maybe it's maybe a simple question, but you know, let's say your parents going to a doctor's appointment and you know that. Mm -hmm. Do you just, I mean, how do you actually do this? Do you just call up the doctor and say, hey, I want you to bring this up with them? Or how, how should folks do that? Yeah. yeah. I, I would call the doctor in advance and I would say, look, I'm coming in with my parents. I'm struggling with them giving some, some authority here for me to talk to you and for me to take care of some of their affairs. 
you know their medical condition. I would like to the three of us to have a conversation while I'm in there about the fact that they should be letting me help them through the proper paperwork that you as a doctor require in order to talk to me without them sitting there. Great. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Their financial advisor and the same with their lawyer. And if they don't have a lawyer, go to a lawyer with them and have that conversation. Perfect. I, I appreciate that. As a financial planner myself, I like the proactive planning, but let's switch back to the gears of now we're in a crisis. What okay. do we do now? Well, so now we're in a crisis and let's say we have our papers. That's good. That's really yep. good. Um, but it's time for a family meeting. Okay. Do not ever discount the value of a family meeting. If you have siblings uh, that, I mean, if you're an only child, you know, no, no need. But if you have siblings, you need to sit down or Zoom, the beauty of Zoom, and talk about, look, who's going to be in charge of what? Who's going to take care of what? And how are we going to make sure that the burden of all of this does not fall on one person? Or if it does, how are we going, how are we able to help them? So you got to have a family meeting. Do you have tips for the best way to facilitate that? You know, truthfully, I do love the internet for certain things. <laughs> and there are. You can just Google, you know, what are the things I talk about in a family meeting? I mean, again, of course, I'm going to plug my book. Yeah, there's there's things in there to talk about. But yes, you're going to find easily lists of questions, things that we should talk about now because now we're in a crisis. Um I would say generally what you're going to want to talk about all the time is who handles what? And how are we always going to make that happen? And here's a perfect example. I was in, in the depths of handling a bunch of stuff for my mother-in-law, my best friend who fell down the stairs, my brother-in-law, and my mom fell and broke her shoulder. She was in her 80s at the time. And I got my sisters together and, and said, look, I can't do this right now. I live physically the closest to mom, but I can't be in charge. So my sister, Tina, who lived 20 minutes away, said, okay, call me. My mother called me the very next day. I need groceries. I need a prescription, whatever. I hung up the phone. I said, okay, I'll take care of it and called my sister because my mom wouldn't call her. Her go-to was me only because I lived physically the closest and she didn't want to bother anybody else. <laughs> Common words. Right? They're busy. <laughs> you can take care of it. <laughs> So, so I called my sister and she took care of it. So we decided that Tina was in charge. And when anybody ever got a call from mom, we all went to Tina, right? Yeah. So. And do you see sort of the splitting of roles? You know, I know some people will list financial powers separate from their healthcare powers or the same. Do you, do you see any commonalities in that? Or how should, be, how should people be thinking of those different roles? I normally do see that because people do have, if they have, especially if they have children that they think have certain skill sets, right? Um, my sister's a nurse, so we love having her in charge of healthcare issues and questions. Um, I'm the elder lawyer, so they just give me the financial part, although I'm technically not a financial person, but that's why, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it does make sense as long as we're two people who can work together and we do very easily and very well, right? Um, I would I would caution people to make sure that it's some, those two things overlap all the time, right? Yeah. Are we going to spend $7,000 on that drug for mom? Because that's coming out of our pocket. Uh, you know what? No, she doesn't have that kind of money or yeah, we're spending whatever we have, it, you know, and we'll all chip in. So if you work together, always, this is really the crux of it. Is it Elliot? Are we working with people who work together? 
And that's yeah. true of your advisors, right? Sure. Definitely. We want these people. I mean, if I could, if I could step away from this meeting with anybody learning anything other than the practical piece, I would say, talk to your professional advisors and make sure they're a team because this is where it often falls apart. They need to work together as a team as much as you do as a family team to take care of, of things in a way that you want them to be taken care of. Where do you usually see the ball get dropped or where do you see mistakes happen when people aren't coordinating just so people can be aware of those pitfalls and things to watch out for? Health insurance and, and our healthcare system do not make it easy for us, right? Definitely. Nursing homes, assisted living places do not make it easy for us. So we feel often that we drop the ball when getting health care, because if we have our documents in place and we have our finances in place and, and everybody's on the same page, that can run pretty smoothly. But it's that day-to-day -day or crisis health care, um, doctors, physicians, nursing homes place that the ball gets dropped. And although we take it personally and think we have failed our parents or our loved ones, let me just for one thing, say something to caregivers. It's not you. Trust me. You're, I'm sure you're doing the best that you can. It is not you. And please just don't punish yourself with guilt over things that happen that you really, really couldn't be there 24 seven to make sure it didn't happen. So that being said, I would say, because I, that's where I see the ball get dropped. If you physically are the person who is going to see mom or dad in a facility or a hospital, go at different times. Don't go every day at 12 o'clock, right? Call at different times because your loved one is being taken care of by different groups of people at different times of the day. And you need to find out who are the good ones and who are the not so good ones and where that might be a problem. If the doctor or the physical therapist is someone that you don't like, you need to speak up and maybe even, you know, make sure that they get a different therapist that's in that facility. Uh, but if I would pick a place, I would say healthcare, and it's not your fault. You can only be a, a, a you know a, a really ardent observer, and then and do intervention. Okay, so calling at different times, asking for a change if a change is warranted, visiting at different times, making sure you get to speak to the doctor or the therapist or whatever. Don't be intimidated by that stuff. You know, I mean, most people aren't. I, I don't. I don't see that. I don't think people are intimidated anymore. They are they are mama bears when it's time to take care of their loved one. But you got to ask questions and you got to pay attention and you got to talk to different people, not the same person all the time. Yeah. In terms of asking questions, are there common questions in a hospital setting that you like to ask? I want to tell you a story. I, I don't I So my girlfriend's in the hospital right now, had surgery last week. Um and she got very, very sick uh, and they couldn't figure out why. And they took her off of um, ibuprofen, right? For some reason, they decided that that might be the culprit. And her, I was talking to her daughter on, on the phone and I said, her daughter-in-law, and I said, oh my gosh, do you remember about five years ago, she had some kind of shoulder problem and they gave her ibuprofen and her entire arm turned black and blue. And her doctor immediately said, stop taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, which is the, you know, the therapeutic dose. And none of us, including my friend remembered that. 
That was not her fault. It was not the medical team's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just such a little thing that we didn't write down, didn't record as a, an allergy or whatever, or something yeah. that she couldn't do. Um, and I forget the question you asked me. Oh, but like you said, do you have questions like in the hospital? And yeah. so I said to her daughter-in-law, immediately call them right away and tell them that story. So they know, do not put her back on ibuprofen. So I guess the questions in a hospital would always be, what are you giving her? Because we don't know what's in those little bags, right? <laughs> yep. attention to that? Nobody knows what's in there. We're just like, yeah, there's a bag there, right? So what are you giving? You can ask what's in there. What are you giving her? What's her drugs? You know, because it might not be that anybody made a, made a mistake, but it might be that we didn't give them all the information. Right. Yeah. So always ask that. What are you giving her? You know, what's, what is her treatment? What do you expect her to, you know, what do you expect her to do like at home? Oh my God. What do you expect her to do when we get her home? Mm, I love that. What do you expect me to do when you get her home? Do you, you know, have you experienced this or I'm sure your, your listeners have where they expect you to maybe give a shot or change a, you know, change an IV or, you know, it's some crazy stuff that they expect you to do when you get home. What do you expect her to do? That's the sick person. And what do you expect me to do when you get her home? And I want to tell you right now, you can refuse. I am not doing that. I am not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm super uncomfortable. I'm not doing it. You can refuse. I think that's important to know. It's good to set those boundaries. Yes. Yes. Because a lot of people will try and do things that they're super uncomfortable doing. Yeah. And it's not great for the caregiver or the person who's receiving whatever you're trying to do and don't want to do. And if you want to know the rest of that, you can refuse and they will send you a nurse to do it. That's the rest of the story. And you can do that. Perfect. I appreciate that story, Kathy. It's, um, you know, I, I heard a lot of be an advocate and I found that personally to be true also when in a hospital setting that you, you have to advocate a lot. And there's, and you can ask questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Are there other things that people should do with a doctor insurance settings as we sort of go back to that list that we were talking about? The other thing about insurance, especially if you, you have a loved one on Medicare, a lot of things get refused all the time and people get very frustrated about that durable medical equipment or, or a drug or whatever. I don't want your listeners to ever think they can't appeal these kinds of a thing. You know, they think that they need a lawyer. Here we go. They think they need a lawyer to do it. You don't need a lawyer to do that. At least start it. You can start, you may need a lawyer eventually, depending on how much you're going to dig your heels in, but you can, it's the appeal process, usually just writing, you know, a letter or even talking to somebody on the phone or, you know, you have the right to and should appeal. They don't know your loved one. You know your loved one, right? And so do not give up the ship so easily. Don't always take no for an answer right away. That's what you need to know about insurance. Don't always take no for an answer right away. Okay. So you get the denial and then call them or write a letter. Yeah. So you have 180 days to appeal. You can write a letter, you know, attach whatever documentation you think is appropriate. Um, and, and say, you know, they can't do this or they need this or whatever it is you think, you know, whatever it is your appeal, they needed that drug. It's, they're actually better now and, and try it. Don't cost you anything to try. So try it and then see what happens. 
and then try again. And then maybe third time around, if you, it, like I said, if you want to dig your heels in, if you, it's a big expense call, get, then you should probably get an attorney and get an attorney. How, how does that work? That's something I, I have no idea about, but like if, if someone wanted, yeah, if someone wanted to go hire an attorney to so appeal what, insurance. Yeah. What you're talking, so, so if it's Medicare, you're hiring them to appeal a Medicare determination, right? And they will file with a, what they call an ALJ, an administrative law judge, right? And then they will file basically papers supporting your position. And then they will have a hearing. And especially, I mean, even before COVID, you guys, these hearings were on the phone. Everybody did them on the phone. Mm-hmm. We did conference calls. Um, and, and then the judge will decide yes or no. If you don't like that, you can then appeal to a court. You know, this can go pretty high. Like you have, I guess what I'm trying to get across is that there's many levels of appeal. And so sometimes if you just say no the first time or second time around, you actually can win without doing that. And you can always give up the ship. That's entirely up to you. But maybe you don't want to right away. And maybe they are wrong and maybe they have the incorrect information, right? Yeah. And so, but the appeal process is, starts with right, a written appeal um, when it's when it's a quick appeal process, it's even just phone calls when someone's in a nursing home and they're trying to send them home and you don't think they're ready. Probably a lot of people have experienced that. Um, you can continue to appeal all the time and the nursing home will actually even help you with that. Um, oh. So but they'll stop after a while. If you get denied, they're not going to you know, help you with that. But if you really, really want to continue the appeal process, you can do that um, for a very long time. There's lots of levels. Let me just add that sometimes nursing homes are on your side and sometimes they're not. Uh, And so that is why you need to align yourself with people there, but also find out, you know, what's going on all the time. And that's true with assisted living as well. And even independent living, you know, wherever your loved one might be living. Always continue, even if you're a long distance caregiver and you have to do things on the phone, you know. I would like people, I would like when Elliot calls, they say, oh, hello, Elliot, you know, your dad's doing great. And this is, you know, what he did today. And like, they know you and they've had several conversations with you because they can, in fact, be your friend. Right. And it's like everything. It's like being a financial advisor, a lawyer, whatever. Relationships Mm -hmm. are supported by continuous touching. Right. By continuing to stay in touch. So you want to have a relationship with wherever your parents are or whoever is taking care of them if it's not you. Okay. Um, You know, I was talking to someone yesterday and she was telling me about how, you know, they were finding an assisted living place for her mom. And on the outside, it sounded really nice and, you know, was kind of felt sold on this place. But then once she moved her mom in, some things started to go wrong. Things weren't as well coordinated, Um, you know, some medication was getting missed or not refilled or she wasn't being notified. I'm curious if you have a way to sort of screen these places, if you've seen sort of a good way to do it or a bad way to do it or just best practices, because I I find that's that's an issue for a lot of people is how do you decide where to put somebody? That's such a good question. Such a really good question. I wish I had a good answer. I will tell you first. so, So there's the general which how much faith can you put in it? But there's the general uh, Medicare website that that um, gives these some of these facilities, uh, you know, one star, two star, three stars, five stars, whatever. So that that's that's a big place to start. It's not mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't put a whole lot of faith into it, but it's a place to start. You're not, don't go to a one-star place if they're on the worst place that you can get the best information. Yeah. <laughs> don't go to the one-star place. Okay. That's always a good advice. Then, then I know it sounds crazy, but honestly, it's like everything else. Word of mouth is probably a really good friend of yours. So it's hard if you're a long distance caregiver because you might not know anybody in that area, her friends or whatever. But if your mom has friends or your dad has friends, you know, who have been to this facility, you should talk to them or their family and ask them how they like it. What are you experiencing? What do you think about this place? I mean, word of mouth is probably one of the best places you could go for information. Also, I would say because there are professionals like me, elder lawyers, who deal with these facilities, I mean, people call me and say, what's your favorite one, right? Um, And I'll tell them and I'll tell them what's my least favorite one. And that's only because I've had a lot of dealings with them. So if you're a long distance person, you might want to call an elder attorney in the area and say, you know, we're thinking about, we may need your services in the future, but for right now, uh, we'd like to have your opinion on these three places. The best, most honest information is going to come from people who have actually dealt with these facilities, not so much something on paper, right? But you can ask them a lot of questions. Um, I do have a section on caregivers in my book that talks about questions you can ask a caregiver coming into your home. Like, you know, Mm. do you smoke? Do you have, where have you been? Even if they're vetted from a company, you can still, you should still ask them questions about what their day-to-day is like. But whole facilities are a little more difficult. And so even if you use rating services, um, you know, I, I don't know who's paying them. I don't know where the money's coming from. I'd much rather talk to people who've had somebody in there. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like word of mouth is going to be the best. Don't go to a one-star place. Um, (laughs) And then if you really don't have anything, talk to an elder care or attorney in the local area if you can. I'd also plug elder care consultants. We've had really great luck with that too. Caregivers, anybody like that, anybody, caregiving consultants. Yes. It's certainly not just lawyers, of course. Anybody who does caregiving consulting or geriatric consulting, absolutely. That's a great place to start. And I would say, especially if you're a long distance caregiver, we are, you know, certainly looking into the possibility of using your services in the future. We're not there now, but yeah. Yeah. Great tips. Yeah. So going to caregivers here for a moment, what are ways that they can decompress, that they can unwind? They, they've had eight people in their home. How, how do they take time for themselves and not feel guilty, not feel like they're not doing enough? Talk to me about that if you would. Do it. Okay, that's my first thing. Just do it. I, I I'm not gonna, not gonna lie to you. I'm a tough love caregiver, right? I, I am very protective of myself. Like, how can I do all this work if I'm not healthy, right? So, so just do it. Like, um, if one thing is, if you're caring for someone who has the finances to pay for care, but you don't want them to because you love them and you're caring for them, they can pay you, especially if you're stepping out of the workforce. Get a caregiver's agreement, you know, get a caregiver's legal agreement, get it signed and get paid whatever somebody coming into your house would get paid. And then if you if you don't need the money, use that money to care for yourself. Use that money to go f- get your massage every two weeks. Use that money to put into your IRA, 
right? Use that money and 1099 yourself. Use that money to get social security. Um, start going for yourself because women are, are, we are the worst and the best. We're the best because we take care of our, our loved ones. We're the worst because we give up all our money to do that. Yeah. Stop doing that. That's one way you can take care of yourself. You, and, and seriously, if you don't need the money, take it anyway, because honestly, if that money is going to be used for that person's care from someone else, eventually you, you will cross that bridge when you come to it, but you need that money so that we don't continue the cycle of women who have no money and have to ask other women in their lives to come in or men and care for them and step out of the workforce. So that's number one. Number two, yes, whatever floats your boat. If you like spa days, do it. If you like um, going to concerts or taking a weekend, do it. Ha if you have people in your life, how many people have said to you, what can I do to help? Come stay with my mom for an overnight. I'm going somewhere. Literally give them something to do. If your sibling says, I know you're the person who does everything, but I want to help, let them help. You know, the one thing caregivers do is they deny others the joy of caring. They think they're the only one who can do it and they can only do it the right and best way. And what you really are doing is not giving others the joy of being with someone they love in a time when you are needed the most. Stop that. This is my tough love caregiving talk. <laughs> I so appreciate your tough love giving talk because it, so many people will not take people up on that question of what can I do? What can I help with? Cause they don't want to be a burden and I'm using quotes here, um, but they're, they're volunteering. So see if they really mean it. And that's how you get to self-care. That's how you get to that place. That's how you get to a couple hours, a, a movie, a, you know, get your nails done, those little things. But even if you need bigger things, a therapist, a, whatever you need, you know what, and the thing is, Elliot, you know what you need. Absolutely. You know what you need. So stop denying yourself. Caregiving doesn't have to be 100% denial of yourself. It doesn't have to be that way. Caregiving doesn't have to be 100% denial of yourself. I just, I'm repeating that because I love that. I just made that up and I like it too. <laughs> yeah. That'll have to make it in a, a new book or a, something. Sticker. <laughs> um, so Kathy, I... Before we wrap up here, there's a question I like to ask every guest at the end. But before we do that, I know you have some books out there. You've talked about them a little. Maybe you can talk about them a little bit more or anything else that you want to plug here um, before oh, we get so to that you're question. you ask me that question. I carry <laughs> them with me wherever I go. So 12 Conversations, How to Speak to Almost Anyone About Long-Term Care. And each chapter is a different person. And the first chapter is how do I talk to myself about this? Mm -hmm. And the last chapter is how do I talk to work about this? Because this is going to have an impact on your work and work should work should come to your aid. And we're getting better at that. And I'm working on that, people. And then in between is your mom, your dad, your lawyer, your doctor, whoever else you need to talk to. So that's the newest one. Okay. And then the one before that is who moved my teeth? If you, are, <laughs> if you are in the corporate world, who moved my cheese was a very big book back in the probably 80s or 90s about how to deal with change in the workplace, right? And boy, is anything going to change your life well, if you start a caregiving journey? So how to deal with it. So the first part is all the legal stuff you need to know. And the second part is a lot of practical things to help you through this journey, right? Right. 
And the first book I ever wrote was Showering with Nana, Confessions of a Serial Caregiver. And this is just a fun little book where <laughs> when my Nana came to live with me, I had a two-year-old and a 92-year-old. And it was just a delight of hilarity and something to keep keep me going, I suppose, because it was hard. I know how hard your life is, people. I know. So do it with laughter. Good. Well, there, I, I like that there's some fun sort of comedic books in there for people and then also some actionable tips for those that are looking for something a little more hands-on. Yes. Um, so I want to wrap up, Kathy, and I, I end each podcast with this question, and it's what is one act of kindness that's been transformational in your life? Oh, my gosh, Elliot. I am here to tell you that I am a very blessed person. People are very kind to me, very kind. Um, But I would say probably the one act of kindness, um, which I was the beneficiary of, but was just a little child at the time when my dad died, which I told you about. Mm -hmm. My mother owned a house, but she just could not go live there with five children and pregnant by herself. And there was a lawyer in our town who uh, kindly helped her sell that house um, and I think was very good about it, like didn't take any money or anything to do it, Um, just did it as an act of kindness to help my mom get on her feet as best as she could in a time of real tragedy. And I don't even know, I never even said this until right now. I don't even know if that informed my life as an attorney, you know, wanting to be an attorney, but certainly there is nothing that does my heart good more than hearing about kind attorneys because, you know, we don't get such a good rap, (laughs) (laughs) but I call myself the hug lawyer because my law is all about hugging people uh, in a time of crisis and helping them or or prepare for that uh, because I know it's going to be hard. Yeah. What a wonderful story, being able to help someone that needs it at a time in their life and not charging them anything for it. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I appreciate all the insights here, Kathy, and your knowledge and expertise and sharing it with everybody. I just, there's so much in here that people can take away from it. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I, like I said, you are a very calming force. I love talking to you. um, And I hope to hear your voice again soon. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.